Tucson, Arizona. We were invited to a Mexican wedding in South Tucson, which is predominantly Hispanic, predominantly Mexican Hispanic. And I think the wedding was supposed to start at six o'clock and we were running late. And we argued about it on the way. I probably was the one that argued about it on the way, if, if I'm honest. And when we got there, we found out that we were the only ones there. So then I asked my wife, are you sure you got the date and the time correct? We checked and indeed we had the date and the time correct. I mean, when I say we're the only ones there, I mean like the gate to the parking lot wasn't even unlocked. Turns out that in the Mexican culture, and I think Hispanic culture perhaps generally, the wedding starts when the pastor, the bride, and the groom arrives, not when it says it's going to start on the card. So we were the gringos that got there first, but the wedding wasn't going to start for another probably hour and a half. Now, educators who study cross-cultural dynamics understand this. There's, there are terms for these uh, realities. The terms are clock time and people time. Now, my Mexican Christian friends clearly operated on people time. It starts when all the people got there. That was an on-time start. Here in America, I tell the bride and the groom when I'm officiating a wedding, I run on clock time just to make sure that we're clear about how I want to run things. And of course, anyone who knows me knows that I am always on time. But no matter who you are or what kind of culture you come from, I think we all deal with the problem of waiting at different times. That's because for sinners, waiting is hard. It means things aren't going according to the plan. If it's people time or clock time, doesn't matter. Now, the command to wait on the Lord appears twice in this morning's passage. In verse 7, we're told to wait patiently for Him. And in verse 34, we're told to wait on the Lord or wait on Jehovah. But I actually believe that this theme of waiting runs through the entire psalm. It's a long psalm, too. It's 40 verses. Again and again and again, we see the importance of waiting. And so my title this morning is Faithful Waiting. And I hope to help you discover the characteristics of someone who faithfully waits on the Lord in this morning's passage. As I said, this is a long passage, and so we're going to read it. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to follow along, if that helps you to focus. We're going to read all 40 verses of Psalm 37, then I'll pray and ask God's blessing as He teaches us about faithful waiting this morning. Psalm 37 of David. This is God's eternal word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, 
and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. But their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage, their inheritance will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. He holds him by the hand. I have been young, and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. But the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful song, this poem of faithful waiting. 
We have much to learn. And even now as we bow in prayer, we sense, don't we, that our hearts are disordered, our minds are confused and distracted. So I pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the reflections, even the questions on our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Characteristics of faithful waiting. Number one, and this sounds opposite, but faithful waiting has an active nature. So this is its active nature. Now when I think of waiting, I think of sort of sitting and kind of twiddling my thumbs. You know, this. But this psalm describes the one who waits faithfully is actually quite active. You are busy while you wait. I think of an illustration, if you like Disney, the, the dwarves of, of Snow White fame. They whistle while they work. Well, if that's an illustration, then you're to actively wait. You're whistling while you work. You're happily waiting while you're working. Augustine's version of this, maybe a little more sophisticated, is ora et labora, work and pray. The prayer part is waiting. The work part is the activity. We could paraphrase this to be work while you wait. There's three, at least three ways. Actually, I came up with about a dozen, but we're going to focus on three ways that we are to be active as we wait in Psalm 37. First of all, you are to do good. Look at verse 3 and also verse 27. Trust in the Lord and do good, it says in verse 3. Cultivate faithfulness or befriend faithfulness. We'll look at that phrase again in a moment as you dwell in the land. And then look at verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good so you shall dwell forever. So the first action that you're to take as you faithfully wait is that you do good. Now verse 3 explains doing good in, in a most interesting phrase, dwelling in the land and befriending faithfulness. Now the picture here of the whole psalm, the land is a, is a recurring theme that shows up about seven to ten times. Really it's, it's running through the whole psalm. The, the picture is, is as I thought about it, is someone's living in a house that his father owns the title to, but he has to pay rent to a cruel landlord. That's the image I want to put in your mind of the land. So the house is in this psalm is the land of Israel specifically, but the word land is also translated earth. We know the earth is the Lord's, and the land of Israel was typically or typologically given to God's chosen people as a picture of what would be true in eternity. I want to remind you that heaven is not in the sky or the clouds in another place. Heaven is here, the earth. So traditionally in church, we sing the, the song, World without end, amen, amen. The earth is going to be renewed by fire. It will not be destroyed. This planet and the universe, the stars and all that we see are created by God and will exist forever. The earth is the habitation of the righteous. The difference is that the wicked, the enemies of God, those who transgress Him, those who hate Him and oppress 
his people. They will not dwell on the earth. They will dwell in a created place called hell. But for the righteous, in Psalm 37, this life is a little like hell. You're living, as I said, in a house that your daddy owns, and yet the landlord is cruel and oppressive and constantly harassing you and making life miserable for you in various ways. And so you're to dwell in the land actively while you wait to receive the house that's yours by right. You're to dwell there and to do good. When that landlord knocks on your door at all hours of the night, you're to do good. When he raises the rent for no other reason other than to spend it on himself, you're to do good. And this phrase, cultivate faithfulness or befriend faithfulness, is a curious phrase in verse 3. Do you see it there? You're dwelling in the land and befriending faithfulness. A couple weeks ago, I used the image of two boys with their arms over each other's necks as they're on their way to the swimming hole or the, or the fishing pond or, or to, to play together. So in this image today, the, the faithfulness is one of the boys and you're the other one or the girl. You're, you're holding hands or your arm is around the neck of this individual we're calling faithfulness. Now, the word to befriend, maybe your Bible says cultivate, maybe it says um, develop. It's a word that's used in agriculture, actually. It's a word for a shepherd. It means to be a close companion with. And what is a shepherd but a close companion with the sheep? And as the shepherd walks and and herds the sheep, the sheep get to know his voice. We know this elsewhere in Scripture and just from our experience. And so faithfulness is the sheep. And faithfulness is an animal that needs to recognize you because you're constantly with faithfulness. You know where it goes. It's never out of your sight. It's always on your mind. You're a close companion. You're best friends with this thing called faithfulness. We get our word amen from faithfulness. It means true, solid, dependable. You see, when you're living in a house that belongs to you, under oppressive management, it's very tempting to sort of, you know, meet them where they're at. Do what they do. You're looking around and you're seeing the wealthy, the rich, the prosperous, they're fat, they're sleek, they're handsome, and they've got great Instagram feeds. You're like, that's not right. My father said that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and here I am living on beans. It's not right. You're called to be a faithful person who waits. And as you faithfully wait, you're to make faithfulness your friend. It's the one you consult when you think about making a a big decision financially. Faithfulness is the one you you talk to and you think about what you're going to say. We read later on in, in the psalm, I won't have time to get to this, that the lips and the mouth of the righteous speak wisdom and justice. How do you get there if faithfulness isn't your constant companion? It's always helpful to think of the opposite. Well, if faithfulness isn't your buddy, who is? Are you constantly seeking companions with porn or prostitutes? 
No, you're to be a companion of faithfulness. Is money or drugs or alcohol your constant companion? As you dwell in the land, trying to manage the stress? No, faithfulness. Are you befriending your reputation or your fame? No, faithfulness is your friend. Do you hang with foolish, godless, mocking fellows? The in crowd? No, even if you're alone. You're not alone because faithfulness is your friend. All these false friends are like black sheep. You're to follow and befriend and a shepherd and to be the companion of faithfulness. You're to do good. You're to act, be active as you wait. The second activity, not only doing good, which, which means befriending or cherishing faithfulness, the second activity, this active waiting that I'm talking about, is to surrender your desires to God. You need to surrender to God. You see this in my text in verse 4 and also in verse 19. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The order is important here. The desires of your heart follow upon delighting yourself in the Lord. Now, how does that work? Pastor, I don't want God. I want this, whatever this thing is. So how can I delight in God when God's not what I want? And the answer is, it's, it's an act of the will. It's a choice that you have to make. Here we're seeing fa uh, faithful waiting is actively choosing to love, delight, honor, serve, listen to, and follow the Lord. And there's something that happens in this transaction of giving yourself to God where you actually experience a change, a morphing of your own desires. I don't want to go to church. As they say in AA, bring the body. Sometimes when you give yourself to do the will of the Lord, you discover at a, at a deep level, a, almost a cellular level, what you were made to love all along, but you never knew. Now, I'm not suggesting behaviorism or sort of rote obedience. There's, there's ample evidence, even in this psalm, that the heart is the, is the outflow of our lives. But no one comes into the presence of God and leaves unchanged. And so surrendering your desires to God, maybe it looks like this, Lord, I know I don't love what I should love. Help me to love you the way that I should. Help me to surrender my desires to you. Look at verse 19. Well, 19 doesn't say what I thought it said, so forget 19 for the moment. <laughs> Two desires stand out in our text that are, that are extremely unhelpful. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. And then there's this, maybe a third one, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Anger, wrath, and fretting. I'm not sure how to distinguish all of these necessarily, but 
This idea of fretting, I want to suggest, if you write in your Bibles, if you can circle that, and put the word to compete. It shows up again in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't compete with the godless. The picture I'm having, the anxiety or the fretting, kind of the, you're, you're too bothered by this. You're looking over across the aisle. You're looking across the white picket fence. It's, it's occupying way too much of your time. This desire to be like them, to have what they have, to do what they do, to, to, to look the way that they look, these are not good desires. This is not what faithful waiting is supposed to look like. Don't fret yourself. Stop competing with, with people who we clearly are told in this psalm over and over again are going to be cut off in a little while, in a very short while. Snap of the fingers. You say, well, pastor, my life's not turning out the way that I wanted it to turn out. Mine neither. As I look back on my life, all I see are my mistakes. Me too. Don't compete with the wicked. Don't compete with yourself. Look to the Lord. Surrender your desires to the Lord. He is writing a story. He is doing work in your life that you may not even be aware of at the moment. Active, faithful waiting, I want to challenge you here, needs to engage us emotionally. Sometimes our Christian faith is weak or fragile or impotent because we're just going at it with our heads. And God wants us to feel Him, to engage Him from the heart. Hence, He will give you the desires of your heart. Your desires matter to the Lord. But hand them over to Him first. He's going to polish them up and rearrange them just a little bit. You might not even notice the difference, but it will make all the difference. The third activity that you must engage in as you faithfully wait in Psalm 37 is to live graciously. Living graciously. We see this in verse 21 and 26. 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous. I'm using the word gracious here for generous. The righteous is gracious and gives. Take, take, take. That's what the wicked does. They take. In a relationship, they're takers. Do you have a friend like that? You're around this person, nothing but take. I act like that sometimes. But the righteous is gracious. How was your day? How are you feeling? What's going on in your life? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? And I'm not talking about not having boundaries in your friendships, but there's something about the godly that is... It is so clear in our minds that God loves me. He's taken care of me. He's done everything that I need. And so I can lend. I can give. Now, I think the specific context here is in finances. Now, our family budget, we don't have a whole lot of extra margin to lend money to people or to give it away. I always say, I don't make loans, but I'll give you money 
but if I give you money, I don't want it back. I'd rather not get into, oh, I'm paying you back. And it's like, no, I'm just, if you needed money, I'll give you this money. And we don't have a whole lot of margin for that. We do have some. I'd like us to have more. But the reason we even have some is because God is teaching us that our, our income is not just about us. By the way, tithing to the church is a great way to begin to practice that habit. And tithing is a little bit like a, it's like a, it's like a scale. There's not one number that represents the best tithe. I mean, tithe means 10%, and some people hit that every month, and if that's you, great. All I would say is, as you give your money, as you, as you share in charity, whether it's to the church or to a missionary or to your friend at work or the guy down the street, the person in front of you in line, you buy their groceries or you buy their tank of gas, it's grace. Well, why'd you do that for me? Actually, you want, you want to offend somebody, show grace to them. We're so used to living in a transactional society where you give and you get. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. But as we actively wait for our inheritance, which is in the new world that's coming very soon in a little while, we're to be gracious people. Grace is an overflowing cup in a bowl. And it's, it's bubbling up from within the cup and it just keeps coming out. And so your cup is ever full and so all that good stuff in the bowl shouldn't be wasted, but shared in a gracious manner. Look at verse 26. It's a daily habit. ESV says he is ever lending generously. Literally, it says all day long. From, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, you're showing grace to people, to your spouse, to your children, to your parents. Children, do you show grace to your parents? It's important. The way I'm thinking about it this morning is you could keep these things for yourself, but living graciously or generously is the commitment to give to others that which you have chosen not to keep for yourself. I think this is a good reminder at Thanksgiving when our tables are filled with abundance. And I'm a big fan of feasting. We mentioned this last Sunday in the sermon. But this psalm cautions us. If you look at verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. The picture is of, of, a, hoarding, of a hoarding person who's keeping everything for himself. And the righteous only has a little bit. Maybe that's because the righteous is experiencing persecution and isn't getting the rewards, the perquisites that the wicked have. But maybe it's because the righteous is gracious and lives generously or graciously. So this is the active nature of faithful waiting. The second characteristic is its future focus. The problem that the righteous people of God are struggling with in our psalm and that you and I struggle with is that we're too tempted and prone to take our focus off the future and we get bogged down in the here and now. Now, there's something called future paralysis. That means you're spending so much time looking through the binoculars that you run into something that's right in front of you. This notion of future focus, though, is different. It encourages us to keep in mind 
how things are going to turn out as a way of managing our current challenges. It's all through the psalm. Look at verse 2. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So we have an, a little analogy or almost a mini parable. The wicked is like, like a plant in the desert that's moist and, and full and green in the morning. But man, by 10, 11 o'clock in the desert, it's hot. That thing is just shriveled up and it's gone. And while it may seem to a child like the hours from 7, 8, 9 in the morning, those three hours seems like an eternity if you're small. But someone who's wise and understands faithful waiting recognizes that it's just a little while. So we're not going to be envious or compete to fret over the seeming lush vegetation of the godless. We're going to maintain this future focus. Look at verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look ever so carefully at his place, this is a research project, I heard there were some wicked people around. I can't get any evidence. I mean, the crime scene, there's not even a cigarette butt. There's no DNA. There's nothing. Where were they? They're gone. In the new world, they are completely without a trace Look at verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Noonday is the time for judgment in the Bible. It's when all the balances are checked and corrected. All the inequities are set right. And like I said, a little child at 7, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning gets a little impatient, a little antsy. Am I right? But what happens is, when noon comes, the bell rings, and judgment begins. And it's not going to be that long. You have to maintain your future focus. You can't live life like your neighbors are living life, which is to say, as if there is no judgment. You need to live life as if the judgment is there because there is a judgment. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead is what we believe as Christians. We can't forget that. It has to be a... It has to, be a, has to be one of the hands on the wheel. It's got to be a weight that guides us and keeps us in line. So verse 13, Jehovah sees that the day of the wicked is coming, and so he laughs, he's scoffing at them. We would do well to copy the Lord. And I don't mean laugh at the wicked in a way that's demeaning or dehumanizing, but don't take them so seriously. They don't have power over you. They don't have what you need. You have what you need. God has given it to you. Rest and contentment there. And you can at least chuckle at the fury and the frenzy of everyone in your company or everyone on your, in your department or everyone in your class as they are seeking all of these things. At least keep your sense of humor. It's going to be gone in, in, in a moment. Verse 18, your possession is forever. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, your heritage, your inheritance, your possession will remain forever. Verse 34, at one point in the future, you will actually, with your own eyes, look upon the judgment. There's an interesting glimpse here of what the judgment will look like. 
Apparently, David understands through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the righteous will be witnesses to the great assessment of the wicked on the day of wrath and judgment. You will witness. And as as much as it trips the circuits in my little brain, we will rejoice when all that's wrong is made right. And those who refuse to bend the knee to Almighty God are judged forever. Characteristic one is its active nature. Faithful waiting waits actively. Characteristic two is it's focused on the future. The third characteristic, with all this talk about the righteous, I I kind of feel, I don't know, I can't really relate. The righteous, the wicked, the blameless, the mature, the perfect. I kind of see myself on on the red side of the ledger, if you know what I mean. How do I get started? Faithful waiting begins with faith. This is its faith beginning. A basic review might be helpful here. The Bible says that we all are by nature children of wrath. There is no one, not even even one, is righteous by himself or herself. The only way we become right or acceptable to God is by God's grace alone. This psalm teaches this in verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be cast, cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. No perfect people in Psalm 30, 37. The picture of the righteous is of a man or a woman who stumbles occasionally or in my case, regularly. But I can take comfort in this, that while I'm not perfect, God's grace holds me by the hand. And so it's, God's, it's Jehovah's grace and mercy that prevents me from coming into judgment in the first place, verse 33. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be con- condemned when he is brought to trial. That trial may be a human court. I happen to think it's referring to the ultimate trial. It's God's grace that that will prevent me from being brought to trial. There's some debate between Christians. Will will Christians be, be judged in eternity? Some parts of Scripture seem to say yes, and other parts seem to say no. Here's what I can tell you. That if you're judged, after every accusation, the answer is, he is forgiven. She is forgiven. That's God's grace. And of course, the earth itself is an inheritance which is given not to the strong, not to the mighty, not to the proud, but to the meek. Verse 11, it's the meek that will inherit the earth. Look at verse 40. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Because, and this is the emphasis here, they take refuge in Him. It begins by faith. Taking refuge means you entrust your whole life, all of your concerns, all of your present trials, 
your future success not only into his hand, but to God himself. As I prepare to close, I wonder, have you ever heard of the saying, hurry up and wait? It's funny, you rush over to the DMV, well, not these days, but you hop into traffic, line up for a Black Friday sale. Turns out a bunch of other people had the same idea as you did. So hurry up and wait. But while it can be a funny saying, there's a gem of wisdom hidden in this saying for those of you who are paying attention, who want to get closer to God. If you really want to absorb the the heart of this morning's message, hurry up and wait might be a kind of motto or slogan that will help you through your troubles. The quicker you get to waiting, faithful waiting, the more you'll start waiting on the Lord's timing and the better off you'll be. Hurry up and wait. How do we apply this morning's psalm? Well, I'd encourage you to memorize it or at least parts of it. Learn to sing it. Sing it to one another. There's so many ways this psalm can change your life if you're paying attention. I mean, 40 verses and it's chock full of wisdom. I've only scratched the surface. Here, a couple of challenge applications as we conclude. Remember I mentioned clock time in the beginning versus people time? Well, I mean cultures. So, you know, in the West, maybe it's kind of a Caucasian white thing, clock time, although I'm told different races, different ethnicities are clock time. And some of my Hispanic friends are also irritated by the people time and Mexican culture. But I mean, that's a cultural argument. It's a, it's, it's a difference. It's a spice that makes us beautiful. You know, different people have different ways of tackling their lives. Clock time, people time, there's benefits to both. Faithful waiting, though, isn't one or the other in Psalm 37. It's the Lord's time. And that cuts across all cultures. We recently had daylight savings time. Now, I've heard some people want to get rid of it and I don't know, I I guess I'd be in favor of it. Just leave the clocks alone. But no matter who you are or what your view is, you need to adjust your clock to learn to wait on the Lord. Listen to Psalm 37 again. Verse 34, Wait for Jehovah and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You need to adjust your clocks. I challenge you with that this morning. Secondly, I want to talk to the men. Fathers, brothers, sons, young men, you get too discouraged. We get too discouraged too easily. Ask the women in our lives. We lose heart. We give up. We complain. We get angry. We're jealous. We're anxious. We're looking over that white picket fence. We're peeking through the slats. We're fretting because of all the good stuff that other people have that I should. I deserve it. I work for it. God wants you men to learn the discipline and the joy of faithful waiting. Active, future-focused, faith-inspired waiting. This is going to bring stability and blessing to your life. It's the kind of man God wants you to be. You know, the shoulders of such a man are like the cornerstone of a stone, 
uh, building. A man who has learned to faithfully wait along the lines of Psalm 37 blesses his family, blesses his church, blesses the block on which he lives, his workplace, blesses our whole society when a man learns to be faithful in waiting. The psalm mentions feet slipping. Maybe you're a man whose feet is slipping this morning. But God promises in this psalm that he will not let you fall headlong. I'm not going to model that for you, but if you can picture me splayed out on the stage, akimbo is the word, with a bunch of scuffs, with holes in my knees and a bloody nose, that's falling headlong. He's not going to let you do that. You say, well, he let me do that. I said, you don't know how bad I could have gotten. I know you're not where you want to be, brothers. Your job could be better. Your family might be a mess. But you have not been forsaken of the Lord. And in a little while, you're going to see everything made right. And the waiting is going to be made worth it. There is a future for the man of peace, our psalm tells us in verse 36. Men, I want you to be men of peace. And finally, I want to apply this to our church. This psalm, in talking about waiting the way that it does, I think emphasizes humility. We just elected new leaders as a church, deacons and elders. I want to speak to us as a church about the importance of humility in our leadership. Archie Poulos has commented uh, on the downfall of a Christian leader. He writes this about humility. Humility, quote, is a crucial factor in Christian leadership. It begins with the recognition of our finitude before God and moves us to be concerned about others above ourselves. Humility means we will be quick to listen and slow to speak. It means leaders actively seek out and value the perspectives, opinions, and advice of others. Leaders, listen. Humble leaders are also submissive to accountability structures rather than insulating or isolating themselves and surrounding themselves with sycophants. That's basically a yes man. Oh, that's an awesome idea. But humility is also important, not just for leaders, but also for followers. Poulos also says this, humility, of course, quote, must also be evidenced in us as followers. It may be as followers we resist being challenged and maybe we're too quick to accuse leaders of bullying or abusive behavior. The fact of the matter is that the Bible calls us to be ready and willing to submit to those over us in the Lord and not quick to entertain accusations against an elder, 1 Timothy 5.19. This is not blanket, carte blanche, if you will, for any sort of abuse that takes place. But it's a good reminder. So as I close, as we apply this psalm, can you see how both leaders and followers need to ingest the message of Psalm 37? Regardless of where we are as God's saints, sinners saved by grace, with a promised heavenly inheritance, we must dwell in this land. It's ours. The meek shall inherit the earth. It's got your name written on it. All the promises of God are yes and amen. But in the meantime, we need to wait the renovation and restoration of all things. Faithfully wait. Actively waiting. Focused on the future. Trusting in Him. 
taking refuge in him who is our stronghold. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and for the way that it meets us in such specific and helpful ways. Thank you for the hope that it brings, that we're not stuck in ourselves and our problems can be unwound and resolved and dissolved by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through the faithful preaching of your word. We trust that's happened this morning, Lord, and that not only the preacher, but everyone who is listening would benefit from the voice of the Lord, calling us as people of God who shall inherit the earth in the meantime to wait faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.